The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith. Sitting next to Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. I'm a certified financial planner with a master's degree in financial analysis, and my partner Ethan here is also a certified financial planner with a master's degree in financial planning. Mm-hmm. This show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning techniques to help you make a lifetime, if possible, Ethan, of smarter financial decisions. That's exactly right. If you'd like to contact us during the program... And uh, we keep it a pretty open format here. We talk about whatever is on our mind for the day. or I don't even know what we're going to talk about yet today, Ethan, but we're going to figure it out. All right. Um, so if you have any topics you want to introduce for us to discuss today relating to your personal financial uh, investing or planning life, please do so. You can call in at 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Or you can shoot us an email throughout the program and we'll respond accordingly. Contact at empiradio.com. Contact at empiradio.com. And uh, our engineer here, Simon Liu, will let us know and we'll respond promptly. Ethan, would you mind sharing <laughs> with our listeners how we may be able to help them um, in a little sure. more specific way outside of the radio program and the written materials that we've put out there. On the website. Uh, how could you help them one-on-one? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple ways. Uh, it could be as simple as just getting a second opinion on your investment portfolio. You know, a lot of times you're, you are maybe working with a, a current advisor or you may be doing things yourself and you'd like to know get a second opinion on how that's currently set up, given your goals and objectives and things. Uh, one of the things we tend to look at, just so you know, when we, we do that, is compare costs. So a lot of times folks who are investing with a existing firm perhaps are using uh, mutual funds of some kind. What we typically do is go through and, and identify, well, what are the internal costs associated with each of those funds? And then on a, on a weighted basis, how much are you paying in terms of in, that's inside those investments on top of any management fee that might be there? So that's one thing we would do with that. But also take a look at the global diversification level within the portfolio. Uh, a lot of times um, folks tend to buy investments and forget about them over time. And that leads to things being out of balance and probably not the best allocation. So we would also compare your portfolio to um, a reasonable diversified portfolio that includes exposures to international U.S. stocks, emerging market stocks, and other things. So that's the type of recommendations we'd be looking to make on just the portfolio basis. But perhaps you're looking for something more maybe uh, something in greater detail, perhaps uh, more along the lines of a retirement plan and a tax plan. 
Well, those are things we, that we also are very, very good at. And if you listen to the show in the past, uh, you, you probably are aware of that. Cause we, we talk about those things all the time. Yes, uh, indeed. Exactly, exactly. No, but seriously, um, we, we tend to, to coordinate the different aspects of your financial life into a cohesive plan, which includes things like not just the investments, but retirement planning, cash flow planning, tax planning, and other things. Um, so if you'd like to give us a call and, and experience that for yourself, we'd love to hear from you. The number there is uh, 206-923-3474. Give us a call. Great, then. Thank you. Let's start with a quick overview of the market. I just want to see what's going on myself here. Uh, looks like today the market closed 15, the Dow Jones 15,555. Wow. And that is uh, up about 22.72% over the last 12 months. Wow. It's not bad. 18%, this 18.71% year to date on the Dow. S&P 500 closed at 1690.25. That was up about 4.31. And uh, the last 12 months then on the S&P 500 is up 26.34%, Ethan. That's significant. 18.52% this year. If we uh, go a little further down and, and now delve into some other investment asset classes, you have small company uh, growth is up about um, 38% over the last, 38.42% of the last year. Small company value up 39.39%, Ethan. Wow. Over the last 12 months. Uh, year to date, uh, 26 and 22% respectively for those two. Hmm. The EFA index, Developed International Company Index, over the last 12 months, it's up 31.8%. Year-to-date, it's only up 7.58%. You know, I, I bet that would, be, that would surprise some, fo- some folks, you know, just looking at the, the EFA, the Large Cap International Index. Right. 31%, almost 32% for the trading one year. Um, you know, uh, they, they're in a recession still over there, and uh, I think that would be surprising. A lot of folks had said, hey, I don't know if I want exposure to international stocks, but, uh, boy, over the last year, pretty good. That's not bad. The value, um, EFA value, 34% mm-hmm. over last year. Growth, 28%. Emerging markets, 8.3% over the last 12 months. And get this, negative 9.94%. So negative 9.94% year-to-date on the emerging markets. Is market. that a typo? Uh, I believe it, no, it's our not. assistant Lynn calculated this. No, it's uh, not a typo. I'm just kidding. You can hold her accountable. I'm just, uh, it is surprising the uh, discrepancy or the differences or returns there among the equity asset classes over that period. There is a discrepancy. Gold is down 17% of the last 12 months, and uh, year-to-date gold is down 20.55%. Hmm. I was just meeting with an uh, investor, prospective client of ours, mm-hmm. uh, potential, Ethan, and I had mentioned gold and the commercials that I had heard when gold was trading at somewhere around $1,800, that it was going to three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 an ounce, and then sure. after it's gone down, um, and now the, the very same people are on the commercials saying, hey, you should be buying because it's gone down. Right. But before it was, you should be buying because it had gone up, and it's going up higher. Yeah. Um, so don't be fooled into, into uh, or suckered into buying gold in any form, whether it's in the, the other uh, ridiculous part of the pitch was, hey, don't buy the gold that's traded, um, you know, you can buy ETFs to track gold or ETNs or you mm-hmm. can buy futures contract, but because 
the company doing the commercials only sold gold coins, they were saying, well, you got to make sure that you only buy the actual gold coins because that's where the value is, um, which is also ridiculous. So mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't listen to much of any of that. Uh, let's look at the interest rates real quick, and then we'll sure. dive into some of these articles. Five-year Treasury at 1.38% this, this week, up a couple of basis points. Ten-year Treasury at 2.57. Last week it was 2.54. And uh, if we look at ten-year uh, or five-year AAA corporates, on average 1.51. Ten-year at 3.20. Uh, these are national averages. Five-year inflation-protected Treasuries, uh, negative. 0.45 is the nominal yield, and the 10-year, 0.44 right now. Mm-hmm. So that's those implied inflation rates to be to break even uh, with the nominal treasury. It would be on the five-year, you need inflation of 1.83% a year over the next five years, or uh, the 10-year, 2.13%. Prime rate, it's still 3.25%. You have... Um, 30-year mortgage average, again, this is just national average. I think we get this off of Bloomberg, um, 4.39%, Ethan. Mm-hmm. Still pretty good. Not bad. Pretty low. Um, and gold is at uh, 13.31 a, an ounce. Um, last week it was 12.83. Oil, crude oil bent 107.79 a barrel. That's down a little bit from last week. And gas, the average three point nine, three dollars and ninety cents. Hmm. So, um, that's all I have to say about that, Ethan. Do you have any thoughts about what's going on in the market? Well, it's been surprising, I guess, in one way, and then mostly getting much the stocks, not so much the yields. The bonds yields are pretty low across the board, but uh, yeah, you know, again, I think uh, looking at the year-to-date performance for the U.S. has been very, very strong relative to the rest of the world, um, but. Uh, you know, those things tend to go in cycles anyway, but uh, that's what's happened so far. There's a, uh, I believe there's a, a big, um, a big scandal going on with the hedge fund. Um, oh, that's right. And uh, I just wanted to pick up on the news on that real quick. The hedge fund operated by embattled billionaire Stephen A. Cohen, uh, SAC Capital, uh, was hit with white collar criminal charges Thursday that accused the fund of making hundreds of millions of dollars illegally and related government lawsuits said insider trading was pervasive and unprecedented at the firm. Wow. SAC Capital Advisors was charged in federal court in Manhattan in an indictment with wire fraud and four counts of securities fraud. Prosecutors alleged the crimes were carried out from 1999 through at least 2010. So this is uh, over a decade of... of, uh, nefarious behavior. Why did it take him so long to get get cracking on busting these guys? Well, let's find out. Cohen himself wasn't named as a defendant in the criminal case, but the charges could threaten to topple a firm he founded that once managed $15 billion in assets. The charges came less than a week after federal regulators accused him in a related civil case of failing to prevent insider trading at the firm. The government's related civil lawsuit, which was filed against SEC on Thursday, said insider trading at the company was substantial, pervasive, and on a scale without known precedent in the hedge fund industry. Wow. 
The criminal charges sets SAC's relentless pursuit of information edge fostered a business culture within SAC in which there was no meaningful commitment to ensure that such an edge came from legitimate research and not inside information. It added the predictable and foreseeable result as charged herein was systematic insider trading by the SAC entity defendants resulting in hundreds of millions of dollars of illegal profits. Uh, they says the uh, indictment SAC carried out the insider trading scheme with a staff of numerous portfolio managers and research analysts who engaged in a pattern of obtaining information from dozens of publicly traded companies across multiple industry sectors. It said that SAC sought to hire portfolio managers and research analysts with proven access to public. This is like uh, Wall Street with Charlie Sheen's original version. <laughs> exactly All right. All over again. I was thinking the same thing. He's, putting, right? on a, uh, oh he's putting on a cleaning suit. He's in there at night um, digging through the files. Exactly. Um, you got Gordon that. Gecko pulling strings on this one. There it is. The problem was compounded when SAC uh, on numerous occasions failed to use effective compliance procedures or practices designed to root out the wrongdoing. Pursuit of trading it of the trading edge overwhelmed limited SAC compliance systems. Prosecutors said um, last week, SAC in a spokesman said that the related allegations brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission have no merit, and that Steve Cohen acted appropriately at all times. That's interesting. Um, SAC Capital has been at the center of one of the biggest insider trading fraud cases in history. Four employees have already been criminally charged with insider trading, and two of them have pleaded guilty. So they've actually pled guilty, but they're saying there's no wrong. There's no merit, right? I'm assuming their viewpoint from the company level is that they these were rogue employees, right? They wasn't a company sponsored activity that they were engaging in, right? Right. I, you know, from time to time, Ethan, I, I just, you know, I know we don't make investment decisions on day to day market news. We're not. Jim Cramer in here, who's you know, doing a great job at screwing up people's lives, <laughs> in my opinion. But I think it, it is interesting sometimes to see what some of the um, what are often thought to be um, good investments, or, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, sure. only only the smart people can or rich people can get into these investments. There's some satisfaction sometimes to see when people get caught, and uh, I'm glad that they are. Um, they really do bring a certain disgrace on the industry. Mm-hmm. And they also support the the notion that it is very difficult to beat the market through traditional research, which I think is interesting and in a viewpoint that I've heard very few, if anyone, talk about. But the fact that these guys continually, um, we had talked about the other guy, uh, what's his name, Raj uh, Najet. Oh, I can't remember. He was another yeah. inside trader. About a year Roger and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, But the point is, if, if it was easy, if hedge funds had an edge that was repeatable, quantifiable, and easy to execute, they wouldn't need to continuously engage in this type of behavior. You mean illegal behavior. Right. They yeah. could just hire the smart analysts and research and consistently beat the market. Right. But the fact that they, the ones that, have done a good job beating the market. When they comes out that they've been doing this, is no sh- surprise to me. But it's also a huge testament to our the type of investing that we do. Then we have to take a quick break, Ethan. Let's do that, and mm-hmm. we'll come back with more Empirical Investing Radio. Thank you.
comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at EMPIRadio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, just finishing up a, an article in the first segment about um, another, in, another scandal uh, with insider trading regarding Another Trump. Wall Street scandal from the corporate factions. Yeah, they, they, they roll out every few months, it seems like, at the same type of thing with the, with the hedge funds out there. It seems like, anyway. So, interesting. Um, what's, what's next for us, Ken? Where, where, are, we, where are we heading next? What, what territory will we explore? That's, uh, we're on a journey here, Ethan. That's why it says fasten your seatbelts. That's right. Um, All aboard! All aboard. We're about to take off. So every week, Lynn forwards me articles. That's true. And uh, I'm looking. I printed a few of them. I think I gave you copies. I haven't read uh, them. I, I like to explore it. i like us all to be exploring this journey fresh. Makes it a little more exciting. But the, the headlines are grabbing me. Uh, one is why the top funds tumble. Um, this is from the looks like the Wall Street Journal. Oh, uh huh. Investors to flee the worst mutual funds or private equity funds can better their chances of avoiding more pain later on. Uh, the other one is the forgotten funds that are suddenly drawing crowds by Jason Swagon. I like Jason's. Yeah, he writes a lot of his material. Reasonably good stuff. Um, do you have a preference? <coughs> Which one we should tackle? Let's let's do Jason's article. Why not? Yeah, let's. Stick with the stick with the. Uh, the forgotten funds that are suddenly drawing crowds while money has been gushing. It's not just coming out of there; it's gushing out, Ethan, like a serious uh, battle one. Gushing out of stock funds, unit investment trusts have been raking it in. All right. Uh, these investments, a peculiar cross between mutual fund and exchange traded funds, have been around for decades. By 2008, they were on their way to oblivion. But the total assets of UITs have since nearly tripled, rising last year by 20% to $72 billion. According to the Investment Company Institute, a trade group, new money is pouring in, putting 2013 on pace to be the top-selling year on record. 
are these funds a good deal for investors? Well, that depends on how much of your investment decision-making you want to delegate to your financial advisor. If you want your broker to do most of the thinking for you, then UITs may be cheaper than conventional mutual funds. Otherwise, you can probably do better elsewhere. Like Greek mythology creatures that amalgamated different species in the same body, UITs <laughs> mix elements of mutual funds and ETFs. All right, read on. I like a little Greek mythology. Sure. The roughly 6,000 UITs like mutual funds are priced once a day and typically seek to beat a benchmark or market segment. But like, like most ETFs, UITs can be bought only through a brokerage firm. Unlike mutual funds or ETFs, UITs are set in stone. Once the portfolios launch, the managers generally cannot trade, and they terminate on a fixed date, usually after 15 months or two years. On that date, you must either take your proceeds as cash or buy a new UIT. More than two-thirds of UIT assets are in stocks or closed-end funds that trade like stocks. Many hold bundles of high-yielding assets like dividend-paying stocks, real estate investment trusts, business development companies, master limited partnerships, and so on. Hmm. Annual expenses are low, often 0.25% to three-tenths of a percent. Or just $25 to $30 on a $10,000 investment. That is a fraction of the 1.3% average on stock mutual fund and competitive with many ETFs. If you don't count the higher sales charges on UITs. Why wouldn't you count? Well, I don't know. We'll find out. By not trading, UITs also avoid the transaction costs, which can exceed 1% annually, that are a silent killer of mutual fund returns. By the same token, UITs also can reduce any hankering your broker might feel to trade too much. But UITs do carry some heavy baggage. I'll bet they do. Um, Let's hear it. They do. You will have to pay your broker pretty richly. If you are reinvesting from an existing UIT, you will get a 1% discount on the sales fee. You also will get a break if you invest more than $50,000 at a pop. Otherwise, the upfront and deferred sales charges on the 15-month UIT, like brand favorites, focus portfolio launched on July 10th by Advisor Asset Management of Monument Colorado, will cost you up to 2.95% of your investment. Wow. A two-year UIT, like Canadian Energy and Income, sold this Wednesday by Guggenheim, investments will run you as much as 3.95% in sales fees. That's right, folks. That's right. While some mutual funds might sometimes charge up to a 5.75% juicy load, and I'm putting that in, you can buy many ETFs commission-free. UITs offer the opportunity to outperform rather than just track an index, Hmm. says Richard Stewart, senior senior vice president at Advisors Asset Management, which conveniently is the one that just issued the... UIT, Shocker. which oversees $8.3 billion in UITs. They also offer potentially better diversification. I'd like to know how that is. Right. Cheaper is not always better, yeah. says Dominic uh, Cagliandro, head of Guggenheim's $5 billion UIT operation. UITs offer a very disciplined approach, quotation. Comparing UITs isn't easy. 
a spokeswoman over at the uh, Morningstar, Ethan, mm-hmm. <laughs> the investment researcher, says that the firm might someday offer comprehensive data on UITs. For now, the websites of the sponsoring firm show each UIT's total return, but you will have to compare them by hand. That's how I like to do it. Yeah, it seems, well. seems efficient. Finally, while UITs are widely, many of them are widely diversified with dozens of holdings, some are hyper-specialized. A broker who adds more than just a few such holdings to your portfolio can end up making a jumbled mess. We don't want that. AAM's Global Gold Income Portfolio launched Tuesday sells long-term stock options on 13 gold mining companies and ETFs. This is a way of getting gold exposure that potentially limits the upside but provides income, says uh, Mr. Stewart, now the old AAM. On July 12th, Guggenheim opened a UIT that holds nine closed-end funds that invest in municipal bonds from New Jersey. That's right, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. You're getting more diversification by being exposed to more managers, says uh, Mr. Cagliandro of Guggenheim. You should be able to meet your income needs more cheaply elsewhere, mainly through index funds or ETFs that hold comparable assets at much lower cost. You could even supplement your investment income by holding an ETF like the Vanguard, Total Stock Market, or iShares Core S&P, Total U.S. Stock Market, and selling you know just a smidgen of your position in regular increments. Hmm. That's um, That's an interesting one, huh? Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of this. So. Unless you want your broker to do all the work for you, UIT should probably be at last resort, no matter how popular they get, says uh, Jason Zweig himself. Well, that seems very, very reasonable advice. So, I don't know, Ethan, why don't you comment? Well, one thing We that, read it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like they, uh, they, they are fairly expensive up front, although the ongoing costs are less than ETFs. But one thing I, I was that, yeah, yeah. that popped into my mind What's as on your mind? Was, uh, the first page, I believe it was, talks about how that they mature, right? They're a year and a half or, or thereabouts. Um, you have to reinvest in a new one, right? Well, that's interesting. Uh, presumably, then you would have to pay all the gains. I would love to every single year, right? If there are gains to be had, uh, which means it's pretty tax inefficient. Normally, normally you can buy if you bought an ETF, let's say, in a, in a portfolio, and it goes up and over time. You don't ever have to realize the game unless you actually want to in a particular year. Um, what if this thing matures at a particular year in which, boy, you happen to be in the highest tax bracket and all of a sudden you're paying 23.8% long-term capital gains tax on whatever your gains are? It doesn't sound like the most tax-efficient uh, vehicle because you don't have any control over, over the, that, the timing of the tax if there is gain. Right. So I don't like that. Um, neither do I like the, uh, you know, the, the upfront cost or the loads, as it were, to get into things. So... Um, Seems like there'd be a better option out there than mutual funds or ETFs. Uh, I'm not clear, and if anyone has this information, um, when he talks about brokers, I'm assuming he's referring to uh, individuals that work at larger brokerage companies, Must be, yeah. investment banking companies, or the traditional because of the uh, load or the sales charge. Right. So in our world, we don't receive anything from the investments that we're putting together for clients. Right. So. That world is a little bit foreign to me, um, but I'm assuming when he is referring to the brokers that that's the context. And when he says the brokers, if you want the brokers to do the work for you, I'm, I'm not clear what he what he means by that. Because what works involved? What difference does it make if the broker sells you a five in terms of the work the broker is doing? 
a mutual fund, a traditional open-ended mutual fund that charges you a juicy, like I said, super juicy in this case, 5.7% uh, load, yeah. then it takes him the work to sell you the UIT or him doing that versus the work it takes for him to have you put into an index fund that has no loads or an ETF. I'm not really clear what the difference is based on the, um, the product. Now, maybe what he's saying is, hey, if you go to a broker, they will, they will and I'm not putting words in his mouth, but we're, I'm just speculating here. Right. You go to a broker because you want some kind of a help, and because of that, it's unlikely that a broker who's looking to make a commission of some kind well, until they get paid. Uh, well, I'm assuming now, because we're in 2013, that that even the traditional broker kind of guys can do more of a fee-based relationship. Possibly. Um, but I don't, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there are different models all over the place here. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is anyway. But I wouldn't be willing to say that all brokers, the only way they get paid. Oh, that's true. Reasonable, reasonable, yeah. Reasonable, yeah. I wouldn't go that far, but but um, it is unlikely that if they were earning a commission or a percentage of the getting a kickback from the fund, um, that they would recommend that you buy the index funds or the exchange traded index funds, right? I just don't get the relationship between the broker doing the work, whether you use the UIT or a loaded mutual fund. Right. To me, they're all the same, other than these come due and then they have to be reinvested, so there's some work there. Right. Yes. But are there any structural advantages to owning a UIT? Like $72 billion, um, he says, that, that uh, went into these, that are in these things, and um, they've tripled, right? It says they, they nearly tripled, rising last year by 20%. Um, I, I don't understand why, what, why anyone would be rushing into this. Yeah, I mean... The only advantage that they highlight in the article, it looks like we just have a second here, is mainly they don't, they don't trade. They're fixed. So once the securities are launched, there's nothing else to buy. No buying and selling going on inside. And I do remember back in the 90s that they're some of the like the dogs of the Dow strategy. Oh, you know what? We've, let's take a quick break. We're right. out of time here. We take a quick break, and um, we'll come back. And we're talking about UIT investments and how they may or may not fit into your portfolio. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. We are just wrapping up a conversation uh, on an article that was in the, uh, looks like a Money Beat. Is that right? Money uh, Beat online website there? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, Money Beat Wall Street Journal is where Lynn gets these. All right. So, yeah, we're talking about UITs and, uh, versus ETFs and mutual funds and the like. And I don't know, you know, Ken, I, I was kind of lukewarm on, on the idea of UITs compared to the others anyway. Um, any closing thoughts on, on your mind? Well, I, I was, yeah, I do have various thoughts, Ethan, that are jumping into my mind. Um, I mean about UITs. Oh, okay. The article. Okay, let's, then let's stay focused. Um, you know, I think in the past, they're, they're, the specific maturity date I maybe had some appeal, particularly in a bond situation. But now they have a lot of targeted maturity ETFs, which... Um, I like that don't have any of these sales charges or other issues mm-hmm. um, set with them. I think that the investment itself, again, is merely a tool, whether it's a broker. And at the point we were making, I was talking about, I don't understand his, in this case, Jason's uh, reference to the broker and doing it yourself because it should be irrelevant, in my view. First of all, whether you have a broker or not, you shouldn't be buying anything that has a load or a penalty on it. Um, I just don't think there's a need for that in today's investment world. However, I strongly believe that you should be paying for some sort of financial guidance, uh, particularly if you have no experience or formal training in that area, and it's a substantial amount of money that you can't afford to lose, and you need it for the future, mm-hmm. for your for retirement or for your kids to go to college or things that are very important to you um, and time bound as well so I wouldn't be fooling around in either case randomly picking things because I'm trying to save money on the advice part of it but my my grievance is always having it attached to some product that if you make the change in the product because it's no longer appropriate you've now you've now lost money because there was there was a fee attached to it so buying a fund that has a five 0.75% load that Jason refers to, I have a hard time swallowing that because you could buy that fund and the very next day, what if you had an emergency and you actually needed to change things and you wanted to sell the fund? Not not even because it's a horrible fund, right? But just because you need it. Uh, you've just lost almost 6% of your money for no reason at all. Sure. Um, I would rather have the advice whatever amount of compensation that I'm paying for the advice, I'd rather have that very clear and upfront and as a pay-as-I'm-going-along type of approach um, rather than I've just paid you six years' worth of fee that you could never talk to me again, right? If it's almost 6% and you paid an average of 1% for a professional manager or advisor, I wouldn't want to pay six years of that and then hope that they'll be around and it doesn't make any sense because that very same broker could tell me six months from now, we need to get out of that fund. It's no good anymore. And now I've just paid 12 
11 and a half years worth of, of his compensation because now he's putting me in another almost 6% loaded fund. Mm-hmm. So none of that makes any sense to me. And if these any of the UITs would have some sales charge, I would avoid them simply because of that. Right. Um, but that's just me. That's just my personal opinion on that. Secondly, um, I don't see anything superior about the structure of the wrapper in this case, um, particularly if it's stocks. And like I said, I remember in the 90s when it was pretty popular because of the Dow dogs of the Dow strategy where they would just buy the 10 highest dividend paying stocks and there were several of those back then at mm-hmm. the place I was working and they would come out with new you, the new uh, unit investment trusts every uh, periodically I forgot what frequency it was but then they had a targeted maturity every like like he says in here 15 months to 2 years right. I think even some more a year mm-hmm. and like you said so at the end of it what do you get you know you wind up getting paid out, and if there were gains in that, I'm not clear. I don't. I want to do a little more work on how, how that works. I guess if it's an IRA, you don't an IRA account, you wouldn't care as much. I just don't see the purpose of it. Yeah, and the fact that they don't rebalance, you know, his point was well, there's some benefit because there's no transaction costs. Well, certainly that's great to the extent that a passively managed ETF or index fund reduces transaction costs by not engaging in unwarranted or needed trading. Um, they're more concerned about keeping the portfolio in balance. So when they are transacting, it's because of that. But I don't think that having no transactions or rebalancing is necessarily a benefit. I actually think it could be detrimental mm-hmm. in that case, that, that rebalancing is a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Randomly trading... And creating high turnover is not is not a good thing. They're two different things. All these things. Yeah, you know, and I think the article. I mean, to the average person out there, I mean, trying to identify the differences between mutual funds, ETFs, and UITs. I think that stuff is really getting into the weeds. If you're making investment decisions based on, boy, do I do I own an ETF or do I own a fund or do I own a UIT? I think you're missing the broader the broader point, uh, which is being properly invested to begin with. The tools don't matter as much as much as, it, as you understand why you're doing what you're doing. And if you don't, then you should be working with somebody who does to help you through all that stuff. Because there's a lot of you know, devils in the details, as it were. And uh, understanding the bigger picture and the purpose of the portfolio, your time frame, all those sorts of things are very important for you to understand. Um, and I think, you know, we just talked about this for the last 15 minutes. And getting into the details, it can be pretty... There's lots of decision points to be made, I guess, that I'm getting at. Yeah, the real, the underlying focus should be on the securities owned. Right. And not only that, but how the securities owned fit into a diversified right. portfolio. Exactly. So ways of, uh, that that investment companies, gimmicky ways that they create products to, to procure assets, um, it does irritate me because they'll put some feature or tweak to it that it's still not worthy of being invested in, but because of that tweak, you know, kind of like the, uh, not a huge fan of the equity linked CDs or those types of investments, mm-hmm. um, simply because the costs that they add in because of this so-called protection um, exceeds, in my view and the research I've seen, exceeds any of the benefit that it's, it's really not a great strategy. So buying um, 
writing covered calls on gold stocks, for example, no matter what wrapper you want to put that in, the candy stinks, right? <laughs> right. I don't care if you put a pretty wrapper on it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not a good idea. Yeah. It's not a good strategy. I'm not eating it. Right. So you can dress it up any way you want, but it's a bad, bad idea. And it has nothing to do with building a diversified portfolio. Maybe that structure is more conducive to doing those types of strategies. Um, and it makes it easier for a particular broker to pitch it to um, you know, an unwary client who isn't familiar with why that's a bad idea um, in the first place. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And so I'm saddened by the fact that money is pouring into these things because it tells me that investors, and as our friend Larry Swetro has said in his books, certain products are designed to be sold not not bought or invested in, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I I think in a lot of cases that th- these would be examples of that. They're designed to be sold. Agreed. All right. Next article. Whew, that was Here a good one. All right. Um, why the top funds tumble? Investors who flee from the worst. Mu- so this is by Joe Light. And it's another article that uh, Lynn forwarded in our Wall Street Journal. Like mm-hmm. here. Uh, Past performance is no guarantee of future results, period. Nearly every piece of mutual fund literature carries some version of the phrase printed in small type somewhere on the page. Growing body of evidence shows it's only half right. It is true that investors who chase the best funds are liable to be disappointed. We know that to be true, right? Indeed. But it is also true that those who flee the worst funds, whether they be mutual funds or private equity funds, can better their chances of avoiding pain later on. Mutual funds with performance that ranks among the top quarter of their peers are rarely able to repeat the feat a second time. As evidence, consider the persistence scorecard released on Wednesday by the S&P Dow Jones Indices. The study looked at 134 large company U.S. stock funds in the top quarter of performance for the last five years. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, for the five years en- that ended in March of 2008. Hmm. Worse than random, of, the, of those 134 funds, only 16 managed to stay in the top quarter for the five years ended March 2013. So it wasn't the last five years, I guess, ending March 2013, Ethan. Says the group in which Dow Jones, publisher of the Wall Street Journal, owns a minority stake. That is worse than the 34 or so funds that would survive if performance were completely random. Oh, this research, by the way, Ethan, has been, it's nice to see it updated, but um, it's research that we were reading 10 years ago. Yeah. That the finding you see with these active stock picking guys, and I want to be crystal clear that that's the guy that is running his own RIA that's picking stocks, that's you picking stocks, that's buying it in a mutual. I don't care, again, what, if it's UIT and we were just talking about what the wrapper is mm-hmm. that you put it in, but this idea of I'm a good stock picker. Um, so, you know, watch me. These guys do worse than they should do. If we had monkeys and with typewriters, um, can I get some monkey? Probably um, <laughs> no monkey for you today. No monkey. Okay, hold on. Take matters into my own situation. I can't do it. Can't do it, Ethan. Right. 
But uh, let's... Wait a minute. I should do it. That's one angry monkey. Was this Planet of the Apes or something? I think he, he was investing in funds in the top quartile. <laughs> He's, He's angry He just got his performance report, Ethan. <laughs> I picked it because the last five years were fantastic. And look what happened. Yeah, it's not good. That's so, um, okay, let me proceed on. All right. Of those 134, we said 16 managed to uh, do it. We would expect 34 again if it was just by random chance. That's how many randomly should have been in the top. You may be lucky one year and be in the top quartile, but it's hard to repeat, says A. So, Director of Index uh, Research and Design for S&P Dow Jones Indices. On the other hand, the other hand, the worst performers have a good chance of staying that way. I have an idea why that is. I, what could it be? I don't know. But uh, we'll see if, if my thought is correct. All right. Of the 134 funds in the bottom quarter for the five years ending in March uh, 2008, 64 were still at the bottom or had been shut down by the end of March 2013. Hmm. Private equity funds that specialize in buyouts are prone to have the same phenomenon. According to a recent working paper by the University of Virginia's Robert Harris, the University of Chicago's Stephen Kaplan and Tim Jenkinson. Oh boy, we've got to take a break. Already Just getting heated here. I know it. All right. Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back on this uh, article about uh, why funds tumble. We'll be right back. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com that's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host, your Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. I think we're we're here for our last segment, right? Number four. So this is it for the for, for the show so far. But we have about uh, seven minutes left or so. Let's finish up the article we started in the last segment, Ken. It was about uh, no, it wasn't about monkeys, but it was about why the top funds tumble. Right, and so where we were talking, where we left off on this uh, 
to reiterate, the, the, the research here recently ending in 2013, March 2013, was mm-hmm. on publicly traded large cap mutual funds at 16 out of 134 that were previously in the top quartile of return performance mm-hmm. remained in that. And we would expect 34 by, by random chance. You know, like I said, if monkeys were, were just throwing things at uh, a board. Right. Um, that's what we would expect. And now we're talking about private equity funds, and they're saying they're pr- prone to the same uh, phenomenon. Uh, buyout funds. Using a database of fund returns stretching back to 1984, the researchers measured how well performance of private equity funds predicted the performance of follow-on funds raised by the same managers. Before 2000, if a private equity firm had an outstanding buyout fund, its subsequent buyout fund also did well. But since that year, it is only the underperformance that seems to persist. Of the funds whose predecessor's performance was in the bottom quartile, a full 64% ended up in the bottom half of performers. What happened? Mr. Kaplan suspects that managers are facing tough competition. They are also facing higher prices for companies they buy that go to auction. And some funds' performance also may have suffered as private equity firms got bigger. For small investors, the message is easy. Don't chase outperformance, but run from laggards. On the private equity side, that means shunning the bottom 25% of buyout firms for those in the top 75%. If performance is bad, it's good to stay away, Mr. Kaplan says. Mutual fund investors should combine the lesson of S&P's findings with other factors that predict fund performance. Keep costs low. Now we're getting some. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah, let's, this is the last part of this. It could be the most important. As always, the single best predictor of investment returns is cost. Keep them low and your chances of beating the market rise. That is why index mutual funds or exchange traded funds, such as the total market index, um, are so popular. But if you want to take a chance with a manager who thinks he can beat the market, eschew those whose performance... Eschew those whose performance has fallen in the bottom 25% of all funds. It might be tempting to simply look at just one year's worth of performance, but that might might unnecessarily push managers whose investment strategies have fallen um, temporarily out of style, says Russell Kinnell, Director of Mutual Fund Research at Morningstar. Instead, he says, look at the average performance of the past five years or at the performance of the time the manager has beaten, uh, has been at the helm. There are some poor managers out there, Mr. Kittle says. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So, I, I don't know. You think I have a few thoughts about all this as well. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad we read these because I think, you know, people are out there and they're reading these articles and trying to make decisions. Yeah, what do you I do, all right? Do you take this seriously? Um, what should you? What should the takeaway be yeah. from it? Well, uh, real quick, my two cents on it. We have about four minutes left. It looks like okay. Well, we'll um, be quick. You know, I would say say you, you can. The best way to win the game, as it were, you know, the investing game is to by not playing the game. Right, I, in my view, you don't need to know which funds have outperformed the index and look at the manager and all this other stuff, because all that really doesn't lead to any better results. Um, what you do know is that. Being in a low-cost, diversified portfolio is is the best way to get 
your share of the good performance that'll come from the market over time. Right. So my my view is don't don't play the game where you're analyzing. Well, oh, was my fund in the top twenty five percent last year? And hmm. you're asking the wrong questions. Th- those things are going to be random when they occur and when they don't occur. And there's no way for you to predict which ones are going to be outperforming in any given year versus any other. Uh, over time, though, what really matters, as the article states at the end, there's keeping costs pretty low and being very diversified. And then I think sticking with the strategy. Yeah, those are the fundamental principles that'll help you know bring you success in investing. Uh, just in spite of you know people who like to chase returns and all those sorts of things. And I think in a broader sense, Ethan, that it's possible for what what's important for people to understand is it's very possible that an index fund is is at the bottom of the performance in the category. Um, that That's will, true. Will happen. It'll be in the in the it it should be um, occasionally in the bottom quartile of returns. But you certainly wouldn't sell your your index. Fund or your passively managed fund, for example, because it was in the bottom quartile for a particular period. So that's not really clarified here, other than you know his comment about keeping the cost low. That's the he's giving the reason for the fund is keeping the cost low, and the studies that I have seen on bottom performing um, managers that are consistently poor at the bottom. There is a there is some correlation or relationship there to the cost. That hey, if they're charging three percent a year, it's pretty difficult. When we already know that the conclusion is it's hard. It's pretty random when you're going to beat the market anyway. If the cost was zero, their odds would only increase marginally. Right. right. It's tough anyway with right. no cost drag. It's the higher that cost drag is, the tougher it is when you're when you're when you're when your function is to buy particular groups of stocks rather than mixing together broader asset classes in a way that helps an individual optimize their their success, you know, given their personal circumstances. That's mm-hmm. where the real tricky stuff is. Uh, it's not picking 40 stocks out of 500 that are going to do the best because that's just random. So in my view, the real story here is not just that, that the index funds are lower or you always avoid the ones at the bottom because we'll see a study at, at some other point that'll be a different way of stacking these guys up. And um, to try to base your strategy around following that, that, well, right now I'll sell my funds whenever they're in the bottom quartile, and then I'll buy the ones in the top. Well, he had already pointed out in the beginning that buying them in the top doesn't make any sense. So just selling them when they're in the bottom, well, what does that mean then? Right, what are you going to do? Where will you put them? Now I've sold my bottom quartile performers and that's what's not answered here, right? Is he just said, "Don't buy the top ones, but don't hang on to the bottom ones." Right. So what I'll do is I'll buy the mediocre ones. Right. Like how do, most people would have a very hard time doing that unless they knew why they were doing it. Right. right? And the way we're saying to do it is, it's because you're not playing that game. The way you win this game is by not playing it. Right. Playing a completely different game. Don't don't jump into the monkey party. <laughs> exactly. Right. Because you you wind up you're you're not going to be happy. <laughs> Can I get a happy monkey? Call it. Sounds like this. Now you try. I'm not sure I'm going to try that. Sounds like a nice monkey party, though. So if you want to be a happy monkey, um, don't what I'm suggesting is don't play this particular game. Yeah. And um, focus instead on on the structure of the portfolio and getting getting access, like you said, to these broadly diversified 
And if there if there are funds out there, there are investment strategies that are that are adding some value um, over a particular target benchmark. Make sure you understand exactly how they're doing it. Yeah. Um, and if it's based purely on a particular manager's skill set or their knowledge, I would I would do everything possible to look in a different direction. Some sort of black box, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, even I think that's about all the time we have for this program. Excellent. I appreciate you doing those monkey sounds throughout the show. I know you, you're pretty good with that. Not a problem. But tune in next week. We will be back with more on Empirical Investing Radio. And give us a call here at the firm. Again, it's 1-800-923-4307. Wherever you are, that's where Ethan will be. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 